All right, let's have a seat. So when I was uh, right out of college, I took a job in Moscow, Russia, in the U.S. Embassy as a custodian. Uh, the thing was, we had five floors that, that Americans had to clean. You needed top secret security clearance, and we had you know one custodian for each floor, and it took about an hour and a half to clean a floor. And so the rest of the day, we would sit in a closet. Um, it was just what we were told to do. So we would sit in a closet and talk, and, and I built a relationship with the other custodians. And, and there was one, his name was Eric, and, and he was dead set that evolution was true and there was no God, and we would talk about that, and he'd get mad and leave. Um, and then there was another older lady in her 60s, compared to me, I was 22, she was in her 60s, and, and I remember one day we were talking about God and Jesus, and she seemed interested, so I kept talking and talking, and, and I grabbed my Bible, and I shared with her, you know, the truth of the gospel, you know, for by grace you have been saved through faith, you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, and I laid out the gospel, and it looked, I mean, she's smiling and nodding, and, and at the end, I said, so what do you think? She's like, it's great that you found your way. No, no. No, you missed, you missed the point where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but for me. She said, no, there's many roads, and they all lead to the same place. You know, everybody's getting to the top of the mountain. It's just however you want to get there. And you found your way, and that's great. And, of course, for me, I'm like, oh, I just wasted half an hour. Um, because I, and we kept having conversations, but she never quite got there. Then, years later, I become a pastor involved in church and within the church I start hearing this coming up of oh yeah everybody is going to make it to heaven within the church it's called universalism the idea that everybody is going to heaven believing that because Jesus died for everybody everybody's going to heaven regardless of accepting him or placing their faith in him or not maybe you've heard this this is one of the greatest stumbling blocks for people coming to faith is how could a good God send people to hell? And I've heard this often. You probably have too, talking to people. Well, I believe in God, but I believe he's good, so I don't think he's going to judge. You know, the, the youth has been looking at this Francis Chan series, and a couple weeks ago, that's what he was talking about. The greatest evil, the greatest lies that are being told right now, and here's one of them. Because God is good, he won't judge. Because God is loving, he won't judge. And in this series, as we're surveying the Gospel of Luke, so feel free to turn to Luke chapter 16. Luke is actually uniquely addressing some of these questions. Luke, maybe on purpose, maybe not on purpose, the Holy Spirit's working, lays out the answers to some of these great questions. You know, the first week we looked at, did the resurrection actually happen? Well, we saw that it did actually happen. You know, then we looked at the story of the Good Samaritan, that, well, because Christians are hypocrites, the gospel can't be true. And we looked at actually the gospel is true, although Christians can be hypocritical. That doesn't negate what God has done because his command for us who love him is to walk in, in holiness and, and loving others. And then last week we looked at the problem of evil. That it, if, since evil exists, God is either not good or not all powerful. But Alex did a great job pointing to, no, God is sovereign. Evil is a result of sin, original sin and ongoing sin. But God is still sovereign over it. And God will use the evil for his own good, although evil still happens. And, and so today, here's the big question is, how can a good God send people to hell? So turn to Luke 16. We're going to be starting in verse 19-ish. Uh, but let's set the context for this real quick. 
Jesus here in, in the Gospel of Luke is, is speaking frequently to Pharisees. These are the religious leaders, Pharisees or scribes. These would be like pastors or, or, or priests, the, the leaders of the, the Jewish church, the synagogue. So these are the leaders, the elite. They know the Bible. They're very spiritual. Others look at them as, oh, you know, super spiritual. That's who Jesus kind of has it out for. And here's who he's speaking to because they have a problem. Their problem is they're, they're lovers of money. They're not lovers of God, although they're very spiritual. They're very legalistic and ritualistic. They don't actually love God. And so Jesus is poking holes in their religion. It, and two weeks ago with the Good Samaritan, he's saying, okay, here's the priest, like the, the highest of the high, not even saved. Oh, but here's, here's the Levite that helps them, also not saved because their heart hadn't been changed toward God. So here, again, he's speaking to Pharisees. So look, we're going to start in Luke 16, 14 to set the context. It says, The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, remember that, that's key, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he, this is Jesus, said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. So here's the context. Before we can talk about the idea of heaven and hell, this is actually Jesus' main point. And in Jesus' addressing this point, he then talks about hell and lays out probably the best New Testament, actually best passage in all the Bible of what happens when we die. But we have to know the context first because Jesus' main point wasn't like, here's what's going to happen when you die. His main point was, you got one chance and here's the evidence of faith and you're not showing it. So here's these Pharisees. They were lovers of money. Again, these religious leaders, lovers of money, we see that today, pastors and those who are religious leaders, but really they're just out for the cash. Uh, and they, lovers of money, ridicule them. And he said to them, verse 15, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. Here's what he's saying. We, and we talked about this two weeks ago. Justify yourself, meaning they've chosen the way they want to live, lovers of money, and they justify themselves in order to live the way they want to live. So they had the Old Testament scriptures. In fact, these were the ones that knew it the best. And the Old Testament scriptures told them things like, take care of your parents with your money, give your money to the poor, all these things, you know, take care of others, uh, give generously, tithe, and all this. And the Pharisees would take the scriptures they knew and manipulate it so that they could get what they wanted. That's what it meant to justify yourself. I want this... And so I'm going to just tweak the word, change it to mean what I want it to mean so I can continue to live the way I want to live. That's what it means to justify. You read the word and rather than changing yourself, you try and change the word. Does this exist today? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and, and here's the thing. This whole next section is all about the scriptures. And he's saying God has a standard he has a standard of morality. He set it out. He has a way of salvation. You don't get to change it. We don't get to define our own morality. Look at verse 15. He says, God knows the hearts, and what is exalted among men is an abomination 
in the sight of God. So what they were raising up as valuable and, and great, you know, their own ideas, God looks at that and that's an abomination to me. I've laid out what I want. I want you. I want your hearts. I don't want your religion. I don't want any, I want you. And so your, your legalism and really what the abomination is, is you justifying yourself, claiming to believe in me, but then finding the loophole in the system to do what you want. As I was, every Sunday morning, I go back through my notes and just kind of pray over it. And this phrase kept popping up in my head. Love does not look for loopholes. <laughs> Can we edit that? On the <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Uh, <laughs> love does not look for loopholes. <laughs> love does, I'm going to have to say that several more times. Love does not look for loopholes. Love looks to honor the person that's loved, not to find a way around doing the things you should do for the one you love. Think about that in marriage. Think about parents to kids. Love doesn't look for loopholes. But here they're looking for these loopholes. And he says in verse 16, and by the way, 16 and 17, he's talking about Scripture. The law and the prophets, that is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, we could go through. That's the Old Testament. That's what they had. He says, the law and the prophets were until John, that is John the Baptist. John the Baptist, the last of the Old Testament prophets that paved the way for Jesus. John the Baptist, who was baptizing. John the Baptist, who baptized Jesus. But when he saw Jesus, he said, who am I to baptize you? Jesus said, you better do it because God says so. So he, he, this is John, who was preparing the way for Jesus. John, who said, you know, I'm making way for him. But when he comes... He's going to be greater and I'm going to diminish. And it wasn't long into Jesus' ministry when, when John the Baptist was actually beheaded. But until John. So after John, the Old Testament has pointed to the new. So since then, the good news, or we call this the gospel, of the kingdom of God is preached. If you remember, Jesus, his first message when he went town to town was repent and believe because the kingdom of God is at hand. That was his message. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. That was the good news. The gospel is salvation in Jesus, not by law. Salvation because of God sending his son to die on the cross. Sin is the issue. They, they knew it. We know it. But Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And so the old led to the new. He says, the old, you had that. Then you had John. Now you have me. Now here's the thing about, real quick, Old, old Testament to new. The Old Testament scripture talks about being a shadow, the law, uh, the, the, all the festivals and the sacrificial system, all that was a shadow of what was to come when the Messiah would come. So the sacrificial system where they would go every year, they would kill a lamb or a goat, they would kill an animal for their sins. And by the way, you had to kill the animal for your own sins. Imagine being a 14-year-old and, and the way you did it was you, you put the lamb between your knees, you pulled its head back and you slit its throat. What, what would that put in your mind about sin every year when you're, because that would cover your sin? All of that was a shadow. They would take that blood and sprinkle it on things to, that pointed toward Jesus' sacrifice. In Hebrews, it's written, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The Passover lamb, this feast they would have every year. And remember, the blood of the lamb, you, you kill the lamb, you put the blood on your doorpost, and the angel of death will go over your house and kill the Egyptians. 
All of that pointed forward. It was a shadow of what Jesus would do, that his blood, this is so beautiful, his blood shed for you. Our faith in that is like wiping the blood on our doorpost and, and the angel of death passes over us and we get salvation because of Jesus. All of this was a shadow. And what happens when a, you, know, you hold your hand, there's a light. What happens as the real thing gets closer to the shadow? The shadow disappears. So that's what he's saying. You had the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures. They led to John and to now the gospel of the kingdom. And now we have our New Testament scriptures. But here's what they're doing with the scriptures. Everyone is forcing his way into it. Verse 16. And everyone forces his way into it. This is one of those phrases that you can read the commentaries and struggle with. What in the world does that mean? Well, here's, here's what I think is the best interpretation of, of what that means according to the context. Everyone forces their way into it, meaning they'll take the scriptures, they'll make it mean what they want so that they get in. So they can adjust it. Universalism is one of those. Scripture clearly teaches a heaven and a hell, but people will force their way in by taking the scripture and going, I don't believe that passage. That's out of date. That was cultural. That was miswritten. What, God changed his mind. And they're, they're forcing their way into it. And you can take that even beyond to those who don't believe or those who would say all roads lead to heaven. They're coming up with their own philosophies and ideas so that they feel content to live their life and then pass their death. And Jesus is saying, you know, they're, they're forcing their way into it, but they aren't really. They might feel good about themselves, but truth is still truth, and truth is absolute. You cannot change the word of God. Calling a dog a cat does not make it so. So he gives us the example in verse 18. He says, I'm going to give you an example of what you guys are doing. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Here's why Jesus used this one. The Jews in that time had created their own rules for divorce. Listen to this. Man, you'll like this, maybe. If you were out in front of your house and your wife was inside and she was talking and you could hear her voice, you could divorce her. If she had a physical blemish that you couldn't live with, you could divorce her. If uh, she spoiled your food, you could divorce her. Now, in context, that, that was more of like she did it on purpose. You know, like she made the meal and then oversalted yours because she was mad at you. And, and hers is good and you're like, Bleh. you could divorce her. That wasn't God's way. And from the Old Testament scriptures, that wasn't God's way. But they made their own way and lived by that. And he says, you made your own way, but guess what? It's illegitimate. It doesn't count. God defines morality. You don't. What kind of an arrogant person compares himself with God and goes, I'll do it my way. In fact, I'll decide my way is truth. I'll even write it down and help others go my way, our way, what we like. This is all setting the stage for what he's getting to. Here's that, that big point of we have the scriptures. God has laid it out. And love doesn't look for loopholes. Love does not look for loopholes. Think about this. Say I wrote a letter to you. To spread it around. I'm coming to your town to visit, and I'm just going to tell you about me. You know, uh, my name is Derek, and and I love the the Denver Broncos, and I'm not crazy about the Raiders. Uh, blue cheese is a horrible thing. You know, nobody should have invented it, but steak is great. And I, I just go through all this list of the things I love and the things I hate. And you get that, and you go, okay, he's coming to visit with us. Um, we're going to house him. You know, he gave us this this letter. 
Would you look at that and go, oh, he doesn't like blue cheese? I don't think he meant it. Let's get him blue cheese. Or I get there and they're like, hmm, I'll bet you think Brett Favre is the best quarterback ever. Like, well, who beat him in the Super Bowl? John Elway. He's... Anyway, would you read the letter that I wrote about myself and change it? You know, would you have the authority to look at it and go, I think he's really like this. I mean, we do this with our kids. We'll make a meal and they'll come in and look at it and go, ugh. Like, no, no, you love this. <laughs> oh, I do? <laughs> I mean, when they're younger, they do that. When they get older, they're like, no. That's what they're trying to do with the scriptures. They're going, hey, here's what God really means. Or, God, you really want it this way. You just don't know it. So here, now, we're going to move that Jesus is going to describe what happens to those who live this way. The person that defines their own morality, and really, in context, he's talking about the lover of money. The misuse of wealth. The person that lives for themselves financially and, and in other ways, in disregard of what is written in God's word, here's what they can bank on and plan for. Look at verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame." But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said to them, And he said, I beg you then, Father, to send me to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that they may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. He said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone rises from the dead. We see so much in this passage. Now, some will argue this isn't a parable. Because every parable, other than this one, doesn't use names. This one uses na the name of Lazarus. Uh, it refers to the rich man. There's a debate about that. Maybe, maybe not. But this clearly teaches about what happens after death. And Jesus' point is that they know. And this, this one parable, as you would call it, this one parable counters many misbeliefs within the church. So let's look at this. The rich man. What do we see about him? He's clothed in purple and fine linen. And he feasted sumptuously every day. For him, he was so rich, he didn't even have to work. He was having a party every day, and he wore purple. Uh, that's a sign that he's super rich, because purple was a special dye, hard to get, very, very expensive. Uh, even royalty would wear it occasionally. He wore it all the time. So he wanted to show everybody how rich he was. Uh, the Lazarus was laid at his gates. He lived in a big house, big gates. 
So he, very, very rich man. You know, right now, this would be somebody driving the brand new Tesla. Um, wearing the Gucci or the Ralph Lauren or whatever. Uh, they don't shop at Walmart. They, they don't get the, the sunglasses at the gas station like I do because you sit on them every other week. You know, they order the, the best. I mean, showing everybody how rich they are, having parties all the time. That's this guy. And Lazarus, this poor man, was carried. Obviously, he couldn't even walk. He was so sick, carried and laid at his gates, sick, so sick that, that the dogs would come and lick the sores. Now, for them, dogs weren't nice pets like we have. They were, they were pests. Um, maybe some of us think of them that way, but, but <laughs> dogs were nasty. And so here's Lazarus laying there suffering, and the rich man just drives right by. You know, this might be a wealthy person living, you know, right down the street from this single mother, and they see her every day out trying to help her kids and get them going. And by the way, if you know, like, good food, healthy food is very expensive. And so that's a big thing right now. I mean, people, low-income single moms, they have trouble giving healthy food to their kids. Well, this person knows it and goes, eh, I want to party. I want to do my thing. That's what's going on here. He's ignoring all what the Old Testament says about take care of the poor, take care of the poor, take care of the poor. God gave them laws of when you plow your field, leave the edges for the poor. You can't plow it all. Leave the edges. When you pick your grapes, you get to go by once. If you miss some, guess what? The poor get to come behind you, and they get to dig through and get those. God loves the poor. God's heart aches for the needy. And so here, this guy is ignoring the heart of God. That's the point. And what's written in Scripture, clearly he's ignoring it. So they both die. One goes to hell. Hades, the place of the unbelieving dead. One goes to what's called Abraham's bosom. This would be the place of the righteous believing dead, those who died with true faith in Jesus Christ. Now, we can lay out the timeline and we can debate it for weeks, uh, but, but it looks like before Jesus, before his, his next coming, anybody who dies goes to, it's heaven. It's a place of paradise, a spiritual conscious existence in the presence of God. Those who die not believing go to a conscious existence in another place, a place of torment. All of this is until the final judgment. At the final judgment, and there's two, there's the Bema seat and the great white throne judgment. The Christians will come before God and they will be judged and given rewards. And at that time, by the way, when Jesus returns, we'll get new bodies. So we'll go from a spiritual existence in paradise to a physical existence in paradise and then on a new heaven and a new earth. Pretty awesome. The unbelieving dead dies, spiritual existence apart from God, forever. Then you read in Revelation, they will then come before God in judgment. They're there now. Then in judgment, they will come before the great white throne and a book will be opened and they will be judged for their deeds and then cast out apart from God for eternity. Here's the first big point. Every person experiences eternal consciousness after death. Every person experiences eternal consciousness after death. There's not soul sleep. Some would believe that, that we just go to sleep and, and in the end we awake. No. Jesus, when he was on the cross and the thief next to him placed his faith in him, Jesus said to him, today you will be with me in paradise. So when we die, boom, we have consciousness, either in God's presence or apart. Every single person. There is not uh, reincarnation. There is not uh, annihilation. Some would say that. Believers go to heaven, but those who don't believe, they're just 
They cease to exist? No. This passage clearly teaches eternal consciousness. This should be both exciting and scary. And believers immediately experience spiritual presence in paradise with God. Beautiful. Beautiful. So 20, verse 23. Hades. This is the place of the dead. And look at what's going on in Hades. He's in torment. He says, I am in anguish, verse 24, in this flame. He's in a horrible, horrible place. Unbelieving dead immediately go to a place of torment apart from God. Again, let's go to the context of what Jesus is telling these Pharisees. Accept God's word. You try and manipulate your way around it, it's not going to work. Here, this is one of those passages where people try and manipulate their way around it. Here is one of the defining characteristics of the liberal denomination. Liberal Christianity takes the word and gives us the authority to read what we want. That is the defining characteristic of liberal Christianity, that it doesn't mean what it says or something's wrong with it. Where I would say the true way to read Scripture is to read it like looking in a mirror. That's what we see in the book of James, that Scripture is a mirror, and we look at it, we compare ourselves, and we adjust because it is the Word of God. Wayne Grudem writes this. I love this. It says, The passages teaching eternal punishment appear so clear that it seems that we must affirm it if we are to affirm what Scripture teaches. It's true. Either we accept eternal punishment and eternal heaven, or we have to reject Scripture. And if we reject Scripture, we reject the resurrection. I mean, we're, we're done. If we reject this, we're done. We have no faith. Let's just go do whatever. We have to accept this because it's so clear in Scripture. In Matthew 25, verses 41 and 46, they'll be on the screen. This is referring to that judgment in the end where we stand before God. It says, then he will say, this is God, to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And we see in our passage here in verse 26 that there's a chasm between the two. Now, can, can heaven see hell? Can hell see heaven? I, I don't know. I'm pretty darn sure that in heaven we can't see hell. That'd be horrible. <laughs> I, in hell, can you see it? Maybe. Or he's just trying to teach something. But, but Abraham, who was the father of the Jewish nation, here there's this conversation between him and the rich man. And he says, we can't get to you even if we wanted. And you can't get to us. Here's the clear thing. There's no going between them. Death is it. That is it. There is no purgatory. There is no place to go to, to to get better and maybe earn your way to heaven. There is no place to go to and hope that people who are still alive on earth will pray you into heaven. It's eternal. There is no second chance. Scripture is clear that after death, all chances are gone. Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed for men to die once and after that comes judgment. 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be, may be recompensed for his deeds in the body. Again, no second chance. So what does the rich man then ask for? Verse 27. And he said then, I beg you, Father, 
Send him to my father's house. That is Lazarus. For I have five brothers. He says, basically, send him to go share. He's dead. He'll come back to life and go share the gospel. But what is he told in verse 29? But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. They have the scriptures. They don't need signs and wonders. They don't need miracles. They don't need this, this magical presentation of the gospel because they have the scriptures. And the scriptures clearly point to Jesus. We saw this uh, earlier in our study of Luke that there were these two guys after Jesus' resurrection walking along and Jesus comes with them and, and they don't recognize him. And Jesus then starts telling them all the things in the Old Testament that pointed to what would come. And their heart was burning. The truth was already there. They just needed to understand it and accept it. There is no second chance. Signs and wonders won't do it because if a person desires to live their own way and reject scripture, then miracles will not convince them of the truth of the gospel. Miracles won't convince them. Just look at all the gospels. Jesus performed miracle after miracle after miracle, and most did not believe. In fact, when he died, after that, there were 122 in a room waiting for the Holy Spirit. It's possible there were only 122 faithful followers of Jesus after three years of ministry. And many saw his miracles and rejected him. People will not believe because of miracles. Here's another kind of side note. People in hell are asking for evangelism. You see that? This guy is in hell asking that his family will be evangelized. Someone needs to go tell them the truth because this place stinks. In Scripture, because he keeps referring back to Scripture, in Scripture there are so many warnings. Listen to this. There are so many warnings about heaven, hell, judgment, punishment, God's grace. So many that if you were to drive from here to San Francisco... Every single mile, there's a giant sign saying, turn back. Don't go there. <laughs> turn back. Every mile from here to San Francisco, that's how many scriptures there are warning of the truth. So like I said, to reject it, we must reject scripture. If we accept scripture, we must accept this to be true. If we reject this truth, it means scripture's not true. He lays it out, though. Moses and the prophets. Scripture. Now, there's the passage. Lays it out clearly. But I, I want to just ask this. If God is good, He won't send people to hell. If God is good, He won't punish. Let's think about that for just a minute. God is just. Imagine we have a judge at a courthouse, and before him comes a, a serial killer who's killed a hundred children, and he's found guilty. The, 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 everybody finds him guilty. He's clearly guilty. And he stands before the judge. And the judge says, you know what? Because I'm good and loving, you're guilty, but you're free to go. What would we think about that judge? Would we call that judge good and loving? Absolutely not. We want our judges to dole out justice. So, so clearly, if God is good and just, he can't ignore sin. And our sin is much more significant than we realize and Scripture tells us the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. So let's keep our logic consistent. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. So if God is just, He must punish. So now let's go to the next question. Is God fair? Now, you parents have heard this all the time. 
it's not fair. It's not fair. Life's not fair. Maybe you've heard that. Life's not fair. Is God fair? Have you thought about this? God is not fair. And thank God he isn't. Because fairness would be all of us eternally separated from him in hell. That's fairness. I mean, I've shared this before, but if you could see my own heart and my own past, you wouldn't come here. (laughs) But if I could see yours, we wouldn't let you in. (laughs) Because all of us have sinned. We all deserve hell, and we know it. If God was fair, that's where we would be going. Jesus, the Son of God, lived perfectly, perfectly, never sinned. Jesus, who deserved all glory, honor, and praise. Jesus, who deserved all riches, lived humbly, poorly, was beaten to an inch of his life, was put on the cross where he took the sin of humanity. He didn't deserve it. We did. That's not fair. God's not fair, but he's gracious. He's gracious. And how is God just? Because he can't ignore sin. He can't ignore the punishment we deserve, so he gave it to Jesus. Jesus could take it because he was perfect. Nobody else could take it. God is still just, but he's not fair. He's still just by taking what we deserve and giving it to Jesus, laying on him, and Jesus willingly took it. I mean, the night before he was betrayed, he prayed, God, if there's another way, take it away. Let's do it a different way. God said, no, I need you to do it this way. And so he did. And on the cross, he said, it is finished. And when it was finished, all our sins were laid on him. Amazing. God is just. God is just. He had to do that. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But God is not fair. And what is his point? In in all of Scripture, what does God want from us? He wants us. The greatest commandment is that you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Everything. That's the greatest commandment. Jesus said, eternal life is this, that you know the Father and Jesus Christ to me. He said, he wants a relationship. He doesn't want our religious obedience. He wants our love. And love does not look for loopholes. Love accepts God at his word. What's our application? I just wrote down a couple questions. Does this clear truth about heaven and hell give you hope and excitement or fear? Does it give you hope and excitement or fear? When you look at your own life, are you looking for the loopholes in Scripture? Are you asking the question, how close can I get to the line without crossing it? Or are you saying, because I love you, God, I want to live your way for your glory? And we're not perfect. We're not perfect. But is he Lord? The next question I wrote down is, how important is it to accept God's word as written to you? Do you read it? Compare yourself and then ask the Holy Spirit to change you to align. Or do you look at it and go, oh, I really want to do my thing. And so you try and justify yourself. And then let's go to the main context here. How's your use of wealth? By the way, we in this country, we're all pretty rich. How is your use of wealth? How is your stewardship of what God has given you? Do you care about others? Are you a generous and sacrificial giver? Not because God needs your money, but because you love him. And he's already given you everything, and so we give back. How are you using your wealth, your finances? How are you taking care of those in need around you? Like the Good Samaritan, those around you that need help that you can help, are you helping? As we close in worship, worship team, you guys can come up. This is our chance to respond. 
You know, here at Common Ground, we are we're passionate about worship. And worship isn't just singing. Worship isn't just sitting and listening to a sermon. Worship, this is where the Holy Spirit interacts with us and we respond. And so you have the freedom here to respond how you want. As we start to sing, you can stand and sing. You can raise your hands and sing. Paul likes to talk about raising hands as surrendering. That's great. You can stay seated and sing. You can stay seated and not sing. You can, you can bow your head and pray. You can get on your knees and repent. We're going to have uh, the pits in the back, people available to pray. Preston and Linda will be back there. Here they are. If you need to go talk to them, if you don't know where you're going, go talk to them. They'll explain the gospel. They'll pray with you to accept Jesus. Or for any other reason you need prayer, go see them. We have our prayer walls. You want to interact with God, just say, thank you for your grace. Go up here, write it on a slip of paper, roll it up and stick it in the chicken wire. We do all this so that we are active participating in worship, thanking Jesus for what he's done. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we are overwhelmed by your grace. We are overwhelmed by your goodness. Thank you that you have not given us what we deserve. Thank you, Jesus, for not demanding fairness. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would convict us, that if there's anybody in here that does not know you, today would be the day of salvation. Never know what's going to happen when we drive home today, that today they would turn their life over to you. God, if we have other people in our lives that maybe are struggling with this idea, give us the wisdom to point them to know there is absolute truth and life is only found in Jesus. And because I love you so much, I'm going to give it to you lovingly and gently, but here's the truth. Give us those opportunities to share this with others. We love you. Be glorified now as we worship. In Jesus' name, amen.